This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Parenting Beyond Belief and Raising Freethinkers, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. This is episode 16, When Science Goes South. I'm sometimes asked by religious friends why I make such a big deal over evolution in particular. Some have suggested that Secular types beat the drum for evolution only because it's a sharp stick in the religious eyeball. The question itself is a good one. It's not just because it's true. I've heard people say, well, I support evolution because it's true. That's never enough. It's also true that George Washington had no middle name. Of the first 20 American presidents, only five of them did. It just wasn't a thing. But I'm unlikely to devote much of my life force to opposing someone who insists that, yes, he did, and it was Steve, and that only Martha called him George, and only when she was drunk. Even if this hypothetical Stevist insisted on teaching the middle name in American history classes, I might think it was bananas, but I have other fish to fry. Evolution, on the other hand, That's a fish I choose to fry. It's an idea that I want my kids and as many others as possible to know and care about. Because the story I'm about to tell is centered on evolution in schools, I want to start with a really quick list of why it's important. First, it's an everything changer. If knowing about evolution hasn't changed almost everything about the way you see almost everything, dig in deeper with the help of people like Stephen Jay Gould, Wonderful Life and Full House, uh, Richard Dawkins, Blind Watchmaker, River Out of Eden, The Selfish Gene, Climbing Mount Improbable, and Daniel Dennett, Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Second, it inspires immense awe and wonder to grasp that you are a cousin not just to apes, but to sponges and sequoias and butterflies and blue whales. Third, it annihilates the artificial boundaries between us and the rest of life on Earth. Fourth, it puts racial difference in proper perspective as utter trivia. Fifth, when taken as directed, it constitutes one of the four grandest ever swats of humility to the pompous human tuchus. Sixth, it contributes enormously to our understanding of how and why things work the way they do. Seventh, that understanding has led in turn to incredible advances in medical science and agriculture and environmental stewardship and much more. The list goes on and on. And sometimes, my kids' public school education has really done right by that list. And sometimes, it really hasn't. When my daughter Erin was in eighth grade, she came home from school one day and sat in front of me with Evident drama. Guess what? She said. Ah, Norway fell into the sea. You can burp the alphabet. Am I close? Dad, stop. She leaned forward. We started evolution in science today. A tickle of dread went down my spine. And? And it's awesome. He's teaching all about it. He explained what theory really means and said that the evidence is incredibly strong for evolution. And when kids started saying, but the Bible says blah, 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 he just put his hand up and said, you can talk about that with your minister. In this class, we are learning about science, about what we know. 
I had never, ever seen her so jazzed about a class experience. She knows what a crapshoot it is. She knows that she has less than a 50-50 chance of learning about evolution in any depth in the classroom. She lucked out. When my son was in the same grade, two years earlier, his science teacher introduced the evolution unit, which they spent all of one day on, by saying, Now, today we're going to start talking about evolution, and I want you all to know that this is just one guy's idea. So yeah, a crapshoot. So what's a parent to do when the teacher sends my daughter home so jazzed about this great subject? Most, including me most of the time, will do a nice cartoon wipe of the brow and go back to the next thing on the plate. That's a major mistake, and it's also just wrong. We're happy to fire off a blistering corrective to the teachers who fall down on the job and take our kids with them, but we've got to get just as good and consistent at complimenting the good. It's not just a question of good manners. If we really care about quality in the classroom, it's essential to do this. Now imagine you're a biology teacher. The evolution unit is approaching again, and you know for certain that you will get a half dozen scolding emails from angry parents the moment the word crosses your lips. Again, if you've never received a note of thanks for tackling the topic honestly, it's easy to feel isolated and beleaguered. Who could blame you for gradually de-emphasizing the topic until it disappears completely? Even a teacher with the best of intentions can be worn to a nub from years of self-righteous tirades. And those of us who sit silently, never lifting a finger to reinforce good teaching when we see it, we deserve what we get. I finally woke up to this when Aaron was in sixth grade, two years earlier, and started making a point of shooting off a message of thanks to teachers who really rocked my kids' worlds. This is especially important for middle and high school teachers who are much less likely to hear any positive feedback through parent conferences and other frequent contacts that elementary school teachers get. When Aaron was working her way through a much better-than-average comparative religion unit in social studies, I dashed off a note of appreciation of the teacher who nearly passed out from the shock. And when Connor told me that his high school science teacher spent some time explaining what theory really means in science, boom, I shot him some kudos. And when Aaron came home with this story of courage and integrity, I sent a message expressing my deep and detailed appreciation, and I cc'd the principal. The teacher replied, telling me how gratifying it was to hear the support. It's a passion of mine, he said. Even passion can be pummeled out of someone, but now, the next time he approaches that unit, he would hear not only angry shouts ringing in his ears, but a little bit of encouragement from someone who took the time to make it known. I got better at this over time, but I'm still about three times as likely to pipe up when I'm pissed off as when I'm impressed. When my younger daughter, Delaney, was in elementary school, she wanted to be a scientist. And when she was in third grade, a really great toy company called Charlie's Playhouse, which was all about evolution uh, toys and games. Charlie's Playhouse announced an evolution and art contest. And Delaney was all over it. The contest instructions said, imagine an island with a unique environment. Choose an existing animal to put on the island. Fast forward a million years or so and imagine how the animal would evolve as a result of that environment. 
draw a picture of your evolved animal. That's just awesome. Soon, Lainey's sketches were flying. And finally, with just days to go before the deadline, she showed me her entry. It was a monkey with purple polka dots, sharp teeth, and enormous ears. The island has purple polka dotted trees and bushes and quiet predators, she explained. And the only food is hard nuts. So after a long, long time, the monkeys evolved to have purple polka dots, huge ears to hear the predators, and sharp teeth to crack the nuts. Now, she might not have known an allele if it jumped up and mutated all over her, but her grasp of natural selection, even at that age, outstripped most adults. And she got this grasp not through lectures, but by observing the results of natural selection all around us all through her life and caring enough to think about it. I described our approach in an earlier episode when I was talking about our family walking out in the woods and seeing a deer with protective coloration. Look, look, see the deer? I said, you can just barely see it against the leaves. Whoa, if I was an animal that ate deers, I'd never see them. I'd just starve. I said, unless there was a bright pink one. And they both laughed and the deer bolted. Okay, I said, pink and slow. I think I'd eat nothing but slow pink deer. And pretty soon there'd be no more slow pink deer, just the ones that blend in better. And run fast. She heard those observations all her life. And then when she did eventually encounter the idea of allele frequencies in high school and cladistics and the modern synthesis and all that, it glided into place on the foundation that she had laid for it. The key, when she was young, was to keep her engaged. And it didn't hurt at all when her monkey won the national contest for her age group. She nearly passed out in excitement. We let her teacher know all about it, and he showered her with kudos, and then forwarded the news to the front office. Then we received a phone call. It was Ms. Warner, an assistant principal at the school. Becca answered the phone. I didn't know who she was talking to, but it was obviously good news of some sort. Until it wasn't. When she hung up, she was clearly upset. Lainey is going to be interviewed by the principal on the Eagle News. That's a closed-circuit TV program that starts each school day at the elementary school. About winning the Charlie's Playhouse contest, she said. I waited. But Ms. Warner said they're not going to call it an evolution and art contest, just an art contest. why, Ms. Warner said, well, because evolution is not in the curriculum. I said, yes, it is. It's in the high school curriculum. And she said, but not in the elementary curriculum. So it'll just be described as an art contest. The heat started in my neck and spread to my ears and then into my face. And Becca began swearing a blue streak. I sat down and wrote the most fabulously profane email of my life to a friend because venting is good. I'm not sure if I was madder about the ignorance or the cowardice or the dishonesty or the fact that this educator 
was dismissing the truly exceptional nature of what Laney did. It wasn't an art contest, you see. Uh, it's a perfectly lovely monkey, but Delaney's accomplishment had been scientific. The drawing was just a way of expressing her grasp of the science. To have her school... Savor that for a moment, her school. Not only disregard her achievement, but send her the message that it's something to be hidden? To be ashamed of? Now I know what you're thinking. Yes, this is Georgia. But as I've said before... In the years that we've been here, I've had far more opportunity to be pleasantly surprised than not. In addition to living in an area even more culturally and religiously diverse than the one we left in Minneapolis, our kids are getting an incredible education in top-ranked schools. And the state is interesting in that regard, too. After many years in the national basement, Georgia's science standards went way up about 10 years ago. And when it comes to the teaching of evolution itself, it ranks in the top tier of the Fordham study, above... Oregon, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Connecticut, and 24 other states. Georgia. So science standards don't have to be in the South to go South. As Lawrence Lerner put it in the National Center for Science Education Journal, although there is a disproportionate concentration of ill treatment of evolution in the Bible Belt, geography is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for such treatment. Georgia and South Carolina, for instance, treated evolution very well while New Hampshire and Wisconsin did not. The most relevant anti-science spectrum in the U.S. and elsewhere isn't north-south. It's urban-suburban-rural. The suburbs of Atlanta have more in common with the suburbs of Philadelphia than either has in common with the small towns in its own state. The quality of science education tends to drop in sync with population density. But that's on paper. As Ms. Warner clearly shows, individuals in the system will do their level best to undercut even the best standards. A deeply depressing Penn State study, released the same year as this phone call from Ms. Warner, found that only 28% of high school biology teachers consistently implemented the National Research Council recommendations calling for introduction of evidence that evolution occurred. 28%. About 13% of biology teachers explicitly advocate creationism in the classroom, while 60% use at least one of three strategies to avoid controversy. One, pretending that evolution applies only on the molecular level. Two, telling students it doesn't matter if they really believe in evolution, only that they know it for the test. And three, teaching the controversy, which one researcher noted, quote, tells students that well-established concepts can be debated in the same way that we debate personal opinions. According to the researchers, these conflict avoiders may play a far more important role in hindering scientific literacy in the United States than the smaller number of explicit creationists, unquote. And there was just no way I was going to let this one go. There's a lot to digest in this little story, so I've split it into three parts. This is part one. We'll continue next week with part two. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media. 
exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers.